let's get into it. I am Mal Foster, and you are just looking. Oof, yes. Wit. Woo, is all I'm going to say. Well, that, and you're also listening to the latest episode of Dimed Out, which shows that it's not just a beautiful mug that you've got going for you, you also have a lot happening inside of your skull as well. There's a lot of good stuff swirling around in there, which, unfortunately, cannot be said for some sentient turnips in charge of large infrastructures. But the less we talk about that, the better for everyone. Because, yeah, let's just, you know, let's stick to the plan, let's hunker down, and let's pretend that none of that is actually happening. What I do want to talk about before we dig into the delicious meat and tatties of this episode is you and how you're doing. How are you doing? Seriously, just between you and me, how's it going? Are you... yeah? Okay, good, because for a minute I was slightly concerned, I thought... You know, I I didn't want to say anything, but it did cross my mind if you were managing to flatten the curve of sanity, or if, I know, maybe, and uh, you can tell me if you've had a moment, because we all have moments, right? We all have moments where we feel we may have gone past the tipping point, but we're not entirely sure, because we're not entirely sure of much anymore, and, you know, you find yourself questioning if certain things are normal, like, I don't know, just off the top of my head, uh, standing in the corner of the room, just Blair witching it, screaming at the wallpaper, imagining it is the supermarket delivery boy, and he's not only substituted two, but three of your most desired items on the list, which, by the way, you've had to wait seven or eight or even, maybe even nine days for, because you just don't even know anymore. You know, if if that has happened, it, it, it's okay. We can come back from that. I mean, I'm not saying it has happened to you or, or to me, no, or anyone. But, you know, things happen. That's all I'm saying. In all seriousness, in all seriousness, it's just like suddenly vowels and consonants have failed me. In all seriousness... And I don't know why it just suddenly went, like, Second World War radio announcer. In all seriousness, Hitler's on the move. In, uh, in all seriousness, if I can actually get that sentence out, I do want to give a big old shout-out and lots of love to anybody working in the supermarket, whether it is actually in-store or if you are a delivery boy or person. I don't know why I said delivery boy. That is so derogative. If you are a delivery worker or you are an in-store worker at a supermarket of any shape, size, brand or affiliation to whatever, if you are working on the front lines in a supermarket in any capacity, I want to give you nothing but love, as we should all be doing, because let's face it, without these souls working right now, not only would we be sinking like a stone in the deep end of crazy, but we would probably, even worse, be taking a page out of Alex Jones's playbook and looking at the best ways to cook and eat our neighbours. And let's be honest, nobody wants that. Well, yeah, okay, okay, maybe there's a couple of people that want that, but let's let's just let them do them. Let's just, you know, 
as you were, and let's just, you know, stay away from potential cannibals, which, to be honest, has worked out pretty well for me so far, so I'm just going to stick with that. If you suspect somebody may be the kind of person that would eat you, maybe, I don't know, just really take the whole social distancing thing a few steps further, and, and no, never speak to them again would probably be my advice, you know, just in case. Anyway, moving swiftly and firmly away from the topic of cannibal awareness, which is not a subject I thought I would be discussing today, or ever, for that matter, really, but hey, I guess that's just how it goes here on Dimed Out. I want to talk about this episode and why this one is a little bit special. It's a little bit special because it features our very first guest, Dan Saraf is a man that I've known for a number of years now. I'm not even going to try and remember how many. Um, he's also somebody that I've had the privilege of calling a friend for a number of years, too. We first came into each other's lives digitally, digitally, as it were, by writing for the same website, which at the time was called Napier's News, and then it transitioned into Screen Invasion, and both variations of the website dealt primarily with pop culture stuff. Film, TV, music, video games, comic book stuff. And at the time, I believe, and I would have to ask him because his memory is probably way better than mine, but then that's not exactly hard. I think we were both writing about film at the time. And somehow, some way, the idea of doing a podcast was pitched and both of us were interested. So we started doing a podcast for Screen Invasion. And then at some point along the lines, having struck up a friendship and a sort of chemistry on the show, we decided to do a side project called Film Club. And we've just kind of sort of had each other in the other's peripheral ever since. So primarily we connected by working for the same website, talking and writing about film. So obviously that takes up a part of the conversation you're about to hear. We talk about what we've been watching, um, what got him interested in the medium of film as a whole to begin with, what it was like to actually screen films himself, putting on events, how that was, and, and more stuff film-related. But it's not all film-related, so don't worry. If you feel like this podcast is becoming just solely about film then I'm here to reassure you that is not the case. As much as I love it, I don't want it to be completely the, the central focus of Dimed Out, as you will see in this conversation, because we do shift away from film. We talk about travel, we talk about different cultures, we talk about Dan's experience visiting Japan, and what it was like to be an outsider far away from home. All sorts of good stuff coming up. I hope you enjoy this just a smidge the amount that I enjoyed sitting down with Dan. It's always a pleasure to talk to him on or off mic. And uh, yeah, I hope that comes across. I hope you guys get, as I say, even just a smidge of enjoyment that I got sitting down with him. Anyway, without further ado, this is me talking to my good friend, Dan Sarif. to give you an idea of what I'm working with here because I'm in the study slash little library slash side room we have and it's stone floors and walls and so I've this has been a bit of a nightmare this week getting logistics sorted 
it's, it's a little bit of acoustic slap back, but to stop that, I'm, I've actually got a pillow behind the microphone <laughs> and a pillow to the side. So I've made like a little pillow fortress to dampen the sound. It is absolute it's high like tech a nice little makeshift studio. Oh, it is. And the thing is, you can, you can tear it down and reassemble it within like 20 seconds. That's the joy of it. It's so convenient. But it's so bizarre. I'm just staring at a pillow like I'm talking to the pillow. <laughs> Which, who knows, maybe a few more weeks of this, I may actually be doing that. <laughs> if it gets you through lockdown. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so that's a good point. So how have you actually been doing during all of this? I mean, it's it's very bizarre and strange, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I sort of occasionally just take a sort of step back and kind of, I guess, take for granted that, like, okay, we're living through a very historic moment right mm, now. For sure something that people are going to be talking about for decades, centuries to come. Like, it is crazy that we are living through, like, an unprecedented time in mm-hmm. modern history. Um, it is pretty fucking wild, <laughs> to say the least. Um, I mean, personally, like, I can't complain. Like, I'm yeah. lucky enough that I'm still able to work every day. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm healthy. I, you know, I don't live by myself, so I have company. Um, so I'm just very fortunate in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I have friends who live by themselves in apartments in city centers who are finding it very claustrophobic at the moment. Um, I have other friends who have, you know, lost work or, um, I, I, I don't know if, if you do, but I, I know a few people who have contracted the virus and, uh, thankfully none of them have had any serious issues with it, but, yeah, um, so, you know, it's, it's, I, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, how I am at the moment given the circumstances but it's it's a pretty strange time to be alive <laughs> it is and you kind of touched on something that I, I talked about in the first episode talking about how I've sort of experienced this and, and yeah you're in a very similar mindset to me that you do understand I mean it's it's impossible to avoid how weird everything is everything's sort of inverted and it's it's completely it, there's the way that I put it is that the framework of normality is there. We have the people we know and care about. We have things that we're used to. It's just like the, the, the picture on the, the canvas is very different to how we're used to. But you seem to be in a similar mindset to me of, of acknowledging the fact that you are in a, a very decent position in comparison to others. And I think that not only is, is that obviously a privilege that we're both very respectful of, um, but it also kind of helps... I think kind of navigate through the weirdness is knowing that and being conscious of that. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like, and the other thing is as well, I don't know if this is just sort of facilitated by my like crazy anxiety, Um, but I've just been incredibly cautious about like Mm -hmm. everything since, I mean, probably February, I was kind of like, look, I feel like this is becoming a very serious thing. I'm going to be very careful about where I go, who I come into contact with, um you know what sort of things I do outside of my normal home environment Mm -hmm. um and that's just sort of the way I've approached that and like my whole mentality throughout this whole thing is like you know I'm going to treat this as if I have the virus and I don't want to pass it along to anyone else um and just being sort of respectful of other people's you know spaces and you know kind of appreciation that people might have underlying health conditions um so I mean 
it's it, I, I very rarely left the house <laughs> uh, <laughs> since February for that reason. But I don't know. I've just you know I've tried to embrace like the few positives that have come with this. Sure. Um, you know, I use the extra time that I have to read more to to watch more to try and you know do things that normally I would sort of complain about not having the time to do um taking up I mean not as many hobbies as I would like because I'm still working and I don't have like the free time that that some people do but you know learning to cook better and and kind of honing some of my writing a little bit so um you know I, I guess you could sort of take a very and it's very easy to take a very cynical view of everything given that it's a very anxious and scary time, but I'm trying to make the most of of this. I guess see it as as much of an opportunity as possible. I don't know how like how have you been kind of feeling about this? I've been dealing with it okay for the most part. I have been very, um, as I say, privileged to have a lot of time to work on stuff, um, work on creative projects, work on learning things. Like I've just been absorbing documentaries left, right and centre about anything and everything. And it's actually been really, really engaging, kind of latching on to things that I have an interest in, but things that I didn't particularly know about either. So that's been really quite good to be sort of thrown myself into. So it's interesting you mentioned the sort of documentary mm-hmm. uh, kind of binge that you've been on, because it's, I mean, it's kind of something that I've tried to engage in while I've you know been around the house a lot more um do you know the documentary filmmaker frederick wiseman the name rings a bell so he's like he has i mean he's made like 50 documentaries since like the 1960s he's a very prolific dude (laughs) um and he's really interesting he's kind of a genre unto himself um his films are always kind of they're kind of concerned with either institutions or places and his whole approach is that he will just sort of spend a lot of time either in this place or in a particular institution and just Mm -hmm. kind of set his camera up just capture everyday life and just kind of reveal how these particular things tick so he made a documentary called um at berkeley for instance like a couple of years ago um where he kind of spent the fall semester at ucb and kind of went to lectures, went to board meetings, went to sort of student marches and protests. And there are no talking heads in any of his films. There are no sort of interviews. It's all kind of fly on the wall cinema. Mm. Um, But like kind of through that, you know, it sort of touches on these sort of themes of sort of the education system and underfunding of education. Um, There's a film um, of his called um, um, In Jackson Heights, where he goes to Jackson Heights in New York, one of the most like um kind of diverse cities uh so one diverse kind of areas in the u.s and kind of captures sort of life for um people who are immigrants um in america and the immigrant experience um you know sort of captures sort of pride protests and rallies in the area and they're, they're all really really good films and the um they're all on canopy at the moment so i've just kind of been streaming them and they're just so good so he just kind of immerses himself in certain sections and just kind of absorbs everything that's going on. Basically, yeah. So um, like I said, there's Jackson Heights is really good. Berkeley's really good. There's one called Central Park, which is just set around Central Park, capturing huh. different events and people and eccentric characters around the park and occasionally sort of going into sort of public kind of, um, 
I guess I guess like bought meetings and things as well, and kind of looking at how they're trying to raise funds to keep the park in operation. Um, it's he's a really interesting guy, and he always takes the same approach. Um, yeah. The one thing that's always been a kind of obstacle for me is that his films are sometimes like insanely long. Oh, okay. Um, there's one that I watched the other day called Public Housing, which is set in a um, kind of public housing estate in Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's incredible, but it's three and a half hours. Oh, um, <laughs> but they are really engrossing, and despite the length, they're actually really accessible and really interesting. What is it about, is, is interesting that you kind of tap into this, because this is something I've thought about a, a while back, and it's just sort of brought it back to the forefront of my mind. What is it about celebrated documentarians and like really acclaimed documentaries that are just so long in nature. Because I, I went through um, my cousin's story of film recently, and it really kind of threw me into a deep dive into territories and genres and periods that I either knew a little bit about or nothing at all. And in doing so, and then like digging further and further, you find like top whatever lists, you find recommendations, you find like golden unspoken gems, and then you find like a whole sort of treasure trove of, of documentarians and documentary films and they're like ridiculously long some of them <laughs> and I'm just like oh, okay this sounds good but do I have six and a half hours to invest in this <laughs> yeah it's weird isn't it like I mean I haven't at all thought this through but I feel like maybe the great thing about documentaries is that this sort of at the intersection of something being really informative and really entertaining mm-hmm. like they're sort of within a medium that is you know a film that is very digestible and accessible and is kind of you know is made to be mass entertainment um but at the same time you know if you find like a really good documentary film like a like mark cousins or like frederick wiseman who is so sort of able to inform and educate then you know it sort of stimulates so much um you know, intellectually and sort of just like viscerally, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like that was like that's how I feel about documentaries. That you can kind of dive into a really big docudrama, whether it's um, the story of film, or I'm really uh, keen to watch The Last Dance on Netflix. The uh, oh, dude, Michael Jordan to, series. Yeah, you need to. So, like, even if you have no interest in in basketball or sports, this is the thing. It's one of those things that transcends interests. Um, and obviously, if you do have an interest in in the subject of basketball or sports, or, or you know basketball in that particular time period, yeah, you're gonna love it for that reason and so much more. But it's one of those things that I think actually, the less you know about it, like a lot of great ducks, the less you know about the subject, the more you're probably gonna really sort of latch on to it because you're discovering so much for the first time. Yeah, I've heard wonderful things about it. And I have to say, I'm not really a sports fan at all. Um, it's one of the things I just haven't inherited from my parents who are huge sports fans. Um, <laughs> I have never really had much of an interest. My dad used to take me to Liverpool games and I would just be like, I, I'm so bored. Um, but oh, that's I like think there's sacrilege. something about... <laughs> that's sacrilege to my ears, Dan. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's something that just seems very compelling about about the last dance and what sure. I heard about it and the sort of what was happening in basketball and within that team and the, with those people at that time mm-hmm. that I think I'm really just going to love. Um, so I'm very excited to watch that. I, I kind of have a bit of a weird relationship with Netflix's kind of docuseries and I tend to kind of find them a little bit over-celebrated, but I feel like this is going to be the one that is the exception to that. Do you find a lot of them to have been overrated 
over, over I, the years? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I watched Making a Murderer and thought it was fine. Um, <laughs> it sounds like a very horrible thing to say about what is clearly a very important film. <laughs> it's probably the worst criticism that series has received, to be fair. So I think you're okay. I don't it's think fun. you're going to, I mean, you're going to knock its uh, Rotten Tomato score down any. No, no. And then um, I guess there have been a few other things that I've, I've watched over the years, but I think the kind of final straw for me was the, um, what was it called? I feel like it was called Don't Fuck With Cats. Yes. Um, yeah, it was, I think. Which was sort of the like quintessential Netflix documentary that everybody was raving about. And then I watched and I was like, this is trash. <laughs> this is this is the thing, because I didn't watch it, because honestly, I had zero interest in it. Um, but if I remember rightly, it's to do with the web sleuths who were looking into... There's a dude who was posting awful like animal torture videos or something. And it was like a bunch of like amateur web sleuths who sort of compiled their information and resources and basically caught him. Yeah, that's essentially the story. Yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's essentially the story. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was just, it was so, I don't know, it was so sensationalized. And I kind of, it's it's very graphic as a, as a series. And I just found it kind of tasteless. But then I, and I know, I, I know enough about your taste to know that you'd appreciate just how much this annoyed me. But after kind of suffering through about four or five hours of this series, at the end, within the like the last 10 minutes of the series, it tries to make this point that like, you know, the people who have watched this, the people who have watched the series are as much a part of the problem as the people who committed these crimes because you're also engaging with this sick, twisted like disgusting content so I know. think I vaguely remember you tweeting or something about this about this <laughs> being like the most repugnant 10 minutes that you've seen in in I think even you may put it in quotation cinematic his, recent cinematic history I don't think there like were that. any quotations involved <laughs> it was <laughs> it was something along them lines I'd completely forgot about that but yeah I remember seeing that and I was already distance my distancing myself from watching it I was like yeah okay that's just yeah, it was away. just like um, uh, it was just something about having sat through five hours of a documentary that was, you know, showing these kind of really quick, kind of twisted um, kind of images and sort of sensationalizing the story and you know, kind of engrossing you in this sort of horrible world, and then in the last ten minutes being like, but you're as much to blame for watching it as these guys are for what they did. And I was like, well, don't fucking make the documentary if you feel this way. Like, if you feel yeah. like we're part of the problem for watching this stuff, don't show it to people. Is this Netflix's version of the, the Hanukkah remote control sequence? Yes, in it funny is games. 100% that. And it's, that's why I, I remember you hating that. And <laughs> I knew... I, I knew when I kind of brought it up that you would feel the same way about this. Do you know what's you funny it. is for years I've hated that sequence. I've just <laughs> and I've hated that film. But watching the story of film again and that comes up at one point and I'm watching mm. it and I'm like in my head and maybe this is just the framing of an older person, I don't know, but I'm just in my head, I'm like, did I misjudge this? This isn't actually as bad as I thought it was. No, and then I'm like I, I I remember defending it when we talked about the film yeah. years ago and I watched it again maybe two or three years ago and was like, you know what? I think Mal had a point. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not good. Um, I know there's a, I feel like the story of film from what I remember makes quite a strong case for it, but mm-hmm. uh, it's bad. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. 
it, it it did make me ponder whether I should go back and rewatch Funny Games, but I'm, I'm still on the fence with it. Hard no. I'm really glad that you did watch the story of film though, because yeah, um, me too. I think it's it's. I mean, as a kind of documentary, I know that it's kind of amateurishly amateurishly amateurishly. That doesn't sound like a word. <laughs> it's not very well put together. Um, I mean, if you sort of some of the talking head interviews are like really poorly shot and mm-hmm. there's this whole like recurring motif of a bauble which is like oh yeah kind of oh, out there yeah mark loves his bauble his Hollywood bauble. <laughs> the barble it's, it's constantly barble of this, Hollywood. Is, this is <laughs> i've never heard anyone do a mark cousins impression but I, i've been trying to nail that for years i've still not got it this is the thing i think is it something i would definitely recommend for for people as a whole um especially if you do have an interest in cinema but it's it's a very marmite approach i think some people will either really latch on to his sort of sloth like delivery or other people just be like this is way too slow what what, why is this man being so lyrical i find it endearing i do Um, too i love it i do i'm I'm on board with it but i like his voice i think there's something kind of hypnotizing about it mm-hmm. which i think adds to the experience but i think even just you know it's rougher on the edges but he has such a knowledge of what he's talking about oh, for sure that i think just inherently makes it compelling and i don't know if like anyone else could have narrated it or made that film other than him for mm-hmm. all its faults um and i came away with such a long list of things like oh dude it's ridiculous so i i made a list an ongoing list and then for like about a week after i just sort of splintered off in looking at different things and made like a mega list of sorts taking stuff that was in my imdb list for the longest time and ended up with something that's like 568 films long and i and, and this is this is like real speaking to just the nerdiness behind me i put it all <laughs> in chronological order with with you know in in the app for the uh-huh. notes on your phone you can do the little check thing i've literally got them all in that so as oh, i go fantastic. through i can tick them off that's brilliant i need to do that i think i it's somewhere in my notes from years and years ago i'll be able to find it but i literally just wrote them down as they popped up on screen so they're not in any particular order um i can't even find it when i'm scrolling through but there were just i must have had 200 films that i that i wrote down um especially from the earlier episodes mm-hmm. when it's sort of looking at um kind of older japanese movies sure. um and sort of older indian movies too like it makes like a really interesting case for sort of older indian movies being sort of one of the fundamental kind of influences on hollywood that's the, um, i think out of everything that i took from the series the the thing that I really, really liked the most and appreciated him including was just the scope and looking at films from different countries like Chile and Mexico and India, because it's films that, I'll be honest, I've never heard of and probably wouldn't have, <clears throat> unless I'd encountered it randomly somewhere along the line. And it just kind of shows that outside of the, the sort of mega structure of Hollywood that has sort of fluctuated and changed shape throughout the years there's been so much innovation and so many interesting ideas and, and granted not all of them work but it's it's interesting ideas and people taking chances at different places across the world yeah 100 percent. i mean that seems to be like the thesis of the whole movie that mm-hmm. the kind of history of film is racist by omission i think is something that he says yeah. early on and like you kind of see and he make, make builds like a really good argument over the course of the movie that what we think of is like some of the most influential um films 
in movie history actually kind of borrowed those influences from things that we don't remember <laughs> or have never really been archived or yeah. um, kind of studied or have been part of textbooks in, in film academia. Um, it's kind of amazing to sort of see some of the innovations that have long been sort of attributed to Hollywood films, mm-hmm. kind of working their way back into like foreign films. I, I know that like, I guess the birth of a nation is always sort of seen as like this kind of landmark film in editing and cinematography. And as much as it's a very racist film, sort of still kind of held up as an example of like, this was like the start of filmmaking as we know it. But it's really interesting that he finds um, kind of, I feel like there's like Swedish films and even films made by women that sort of came before this that mm-hmm. we don't talk about. So yeah, if anyone that does have a, an interest in film history, like I'm always sort of like, you should check this out because it's Marmite and how it's delivered, but there is like such a good amount of interesting content that's worth worth listening to and worth watching. On the topic of film, I wanted to kind of get into uh, what drew you to it as, as an art form um, at first. Like, do you remember at any point seeing something in particular or just having an experience with a particular film that just kind of made you go, okay, this is for me. I don't know what it is, or maybe you did know what it was, but something just clicked and you were just like, okay, this is, this is for me. I want to know more. Yeah. So I guess like, I guess the context a little bit is that both of my parents are huge cinephiles. Um, And like, yeah, which really, really does help. And so like, Whereas most kids were probably brought up on, you know, Toy Story and Disney animations. I remember watching like The Godfather at a very young age. Nice. Like, I think I must have been in very early high school where my parents were like, right, mm-hmm. you're watching Once Upon a Time in America. It's four hours. Sit here <laughs> and like, enjoy it. Um, but I was like too young really at that age to sort of like, I, it's not that I didn't like them. It's just that I it sort of kind of took them for granted and just appreciated that this was sort of, I don't know, this was like a quality that was to be expected and I never really kind of thought through or never really wanted to kind of investigate too much more into kind of the history of films or how films are made. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, like, I think it was, this must have been about 2006. Um, there was a film that I'd seen advertised, which for some reason, whether it's his poster or the trailer just kind of grabbed my attention. It was Pan's Labyrinth. Um, and I'd never really watched any foreign films before. It's not something that would normally kind of, I would pick out, but something about the marketing or advertising just really kind of resonated with me. And I was like, I've got to see this movie. This looks really, really cool. And I remember going to see it and being like, oh, like this is what movies are. Like it can be like such a kind of, you know, visual and auditory experience, amazing music. And you can, get incredible costumes and settings and cinematography and all of this can work in tandem and sort of at that point I sort of started researching more into how movies were made and um, kind of I wanted to find out the films that inspired it and mm-hmm. and look back through the history of the sort of horror and fantasy genre and work my way back to things influenced Pan's Labyrinth. I think just sort of by osmosis after watching all these films I sort of began to get an appreciation of of how it works um i mean it's a bit of a tough question to answer really because it's yeah i've always kind of wondered like what is it that has always responded about 
about movies to me and like the best sense I've only ever really been able to give is that I think it's it's one of the few kind of pieces of like media and content that just like appeals to the broadest possible kind of demographic like movies can appeal to like the dumbest person in a room and the smartest people in a room um and I think that's something that I really like that like they can be so entertaining and so enjoyable but then you can also peel back the surfaces and see this incredible amount of artistry that goes into them um and something that can be you know diverting and make you laugh and and sort of heighten your emotions for 90 minutes can be made with such a level of craftsmanship and and dedication um and I think that just kind of has always kind of fascinated me about them and it's why I you know I I love knowing about cinematographers and movements of film what inspired different sort of of eras of, of movie making as, as good as an answer I could possibly give to sort of articulate something that's really difficult <laughs> yeah sort of no totally to... and and I fully appreciate it kind of put you in a bit of a hot spot there because it's it's something that you would maybe want a little bit of time to sort of uh, articulate more of no it's, it's just it's, ne- it's never something I've just ever really been able to sort of wrestle with for some reason it's just been something whether it's you know through just sort of a bit of obsession or whether it's because I was sort of raised on it that I've always just had a real appreciation for it mm-hmm. I mean, you had a good jumping off point. If, if, if any film is going to really kind of get you interested in sort of one, the mechanics, and as you say, the craftsmanship of a film, it's Pan's Labyrinth, but also just mm. the sort of duality of that film uh, in the sense that it's framed as like a sort of almost fairy tale, but yet it has so much darker underlayers to it. And, you know, the political and social class structures aspect of that film. It's a really dense film that I think. I know it's appreciated and a lot of people love that film, but I sometimes think people kind of overlook just how much is actually in that film. Yeah, I think it's a very, a very special film, a very important film. And I agree with you that like anyone you speak to about Pan's Labyrinth seems to agree that it's great, but it never appears in sort of, you know, those sight and sound sort of 100 best film lists. Mm-hmm. And I do think it probably deserves to be there. Oh, for sure. Um, you definitely tap into something that, like, I think is one of the, the things that really appealed to me about it was, you know, I, you know, when I discovered it, like, 15 years old, I wasn't super, like, aware of sort of movies being metaphorical or having subtext or themes, but that was something that really stood out with Pan's Labyrinth. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, so this is a fairy tale, but it's also about fascism and it's about the sort of social and political change in Spain and and this is kind of reflected through the characters and how it's made and and I was like and you know the story of this girl sort of losing her innocence is sort of you know kind of an allegory I was like oh right okay so this is what stories can can do I think it just really kind of clicked and sort of made me appreciate like what art really is that's the other thing is it's, it's it is in in a lot of ways a sort of coming of age story but just mm. kind of messed up <laughs> just very dark one <laughs> yeah exactly um so last year to kind of segue um, as smoothly as i can you did some film screenings right i did yeah i how did. did how did that come about uh, and how how was the experience so i um i, I just this is a little bit of background for people who are listening that might like don't know anything about me but um so i live uh just outside of liverpool and i used to work in manchester manchester um had such a good scene of sort of rep screenings and classic film screenings 
Um, it seemed to be like every week at a, a point that, you know, you could go to a cinema in Manchester and see some great sort of independent or classic or foreign language film, but that wasn't really the case in Liverpool. Um, and I kind of thought, you know, I, if no one else is doing it, maybe I should try um, and sort of bring these films to audiences that are a bit closer to where I live and, in, 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 you know, in my city. So I, I tried to figure it out. <laughs> um, and a lot of people were very helpful and, and kind of pointed me in the right direction. So the first one I did was a screening of Spirited Away, the Studio Ghibli Hayao Miyazaki movie. Nice. Um, which I kind of chose, A, because it's a great movie, um, mm. and B, because it's a very popular movie. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I want people to actually come. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. So I thought this is kind of a crowd pleaser. Um, and the first... That first experience, I micromanaged the shit out of absolutely (laughs) everything to the point where I think I, you know, pissed off uh, projectionists and um, kind of wound up distributors. Um, I was trying to make sure that the print was, you know, in the right place that it should be. I wanted to make sure everything started on time. Um, And it went incredibly well. We sold out the screening. Um, I did an introduction beforehand. We gave out some brochures. Um, got some really good feedback from it. It was fantastic. Um, so I did a series of screenings after that where I kind of um, did a season of the best films of, of the decade mm-hmm. um, and showed Under the Skin, um, Moonlight. Um, what were the other two? Uh, oh, sorry, then it was The Wind Rises, uh, again, a Studio Ghibli movie. And after the first experience, I thought, you know, I'm just going to kind of take a step back because it went so well. I didn't need to micromanage everything. Like I was getting a little bit too obsessive. Like clearly these are capable people. I'll just kind of, you know, do what I need to and let the professionals do their job. Um, (laughs) Which, I mean, I feel like I'm now going to be very disrespectful to some people, but I don't mean to be. Like a lot of people did kind of do a very good job, but I should have micromanaged (laughs) because they definitely didn't go as well as, as they could have done. We had issues with the projection for, the wind rises which started early and we had to stop the film um there was problems with the sound and the skin it was definitely kind of a lesson um i think you know being very new to this um there are a lot of things that you kind of you don't realize and some of the work that goes into projection and sort of the organization of these kind of events um is something that i hadn't really appreciated but for the most part, they, they did go well. And the one thing I'll say is they were always really well attended. Um, and I think it was really kind of heartwarming to see that these films from, you know, not only just like several years ago, but going as far back as like 2001 to Spirited Away still found an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of, you know, people were still willing to kind of, in this era of kind of Netflix and streaming and, you know, all the Ghibli movies are now online. People were still willing to go out and see them on a big screen, which was kind of, it, it gave me a little bit of hope for cinema. Yeah, I was going to say, as a cinephile, like that must have been, uh, a, obviously, from a personal standpoint, having put so much time and effort, and, and this being a, a, like a, a project of yours from the ground up, and like, like your baby, essentially, having mm. seen so many people turn out for Spirited Away, that must have been, one, very personally satisfying. The fact that you'd put this thing in motion, you took a chance on it, you'd put it into action, um, and it had paid off. That must have been very personally satisfying. But just also from some, from the perspective of somebody who just loves film, 
seeing, as you say, people still turning out to see this must have been just as, if not more sort of satisfying for you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't remember exactly how many people turned up to Spirited Away. I think it was 300 and something Jeez. and we sold out the second biggest screen in the centre of the main multiplex in the heart of Liverpool. Um, and there was literally not a seat left. There were people who turned up slightly late and couldn't sit together. It was that busy. So, you know, that was something I was really, really proud of from an organisational point of view. But also, like you said, that like we, we did have like an incredible audience for that. It was, you know, absolutely silent. When I stood up to kind of do a little bit of an introduction beforehand and give some context to the film, there were quite a lot of young kids in the crowd that I hadn't really noticed come in. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of, you know, at the door kind of welcoming people. Um, all of whom were like so engaged in the film and really responded to it. So, you know, I would like to think that, you know, maybe the experience I had with Pan's Labyrinth is something that was recreated with people watching Spirited Away for the first time. Oh, that's um, an awesome thing to think of. Yeah, because that's the thing, as you say, it's a crowd pleaser and a lot of people come to see it will come to see it because they know the film and they love the film. But you've got to just fully realise there's people in that audience that have never seen it before that maybe have come because someone they know is like, oh, you should see it, it's great, or just come on a whim. And so here you are providing the opportunity for them to see this for the first time and hopefully love it as much as they should because it's just a magnificent piece of cinema. And then hopefully opening the door to, as you said, with Penn's Labyrinth, digging backwards, looking at inspirations, looking at things from... Uh, the same studio looking at comparisons and uh, what have you so that in itself must have been a pretty great feeling to have yeah it was it was something I'm really kind of proud of of pulling off especially the Spirited Away ones the other ones weren't without problems um, and they could have gone smoother we did have issues but it's all a learning curve I definitely want to carry on doing that once it's safe for people to Mm -hmm. go back to cinemas um, whenever that may be and in whatever context that that might be um so if you are around the sort of Liverpool Manchester area and you are interested in sort of independent classic films or you know anyone is then you should come check it out because um you know I we do try and put quite a bit of thought into to these events and and make sure that you know as good as they can be So I want to talk about something uh, slightly different. I'm not somebody that usually gets jealous over anything, but I did get insanely envious when I saw that you got to go to, to Japan not so long ago. Because <laughs> yeah. that is that is a number one slot on the bucket list for traveling. Um, it's somewhere that I wanted to and tried to get to a few years ago, but just ran out of money, so that didn't happen. Um, but yeah, how was that? I, I mean, uh, obviously amazing, but... Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. So I have wanted to go there since I was a teenager um, Mm -hmm. as, you know, someone who kind of grew up not only on movies, but on anime. (laughs) And it's always like kind of always had a real love for sort of Japanese culture and and cinema and and, uh, kind of Japanese, you know, art. Um, 
it was something that's always kind of a bucket list thing that one day I'm going to go to Japan. But I think there's a weird thing with when you sort of put things on a bucket list that you sort of feel like it's something that you have to sort of, you know, it's something you have to attain. It's like a hard thing to sort of to actualize or to realize. Mm-hmm. But actually, like, it sort of came to a point where I was like, it's not that hard. I could just book a flight ticket and book a hotel <laughs> and then I can go. Um, I like I sort of built up to this monumental thing because it was something I wanted to do for so long. And then it sort of dawned on me one day, like it's, you know, it's not any different from going anywhere else. Maybe I'll have to just uh, cut some costs here and there and save some pennies and, yeah. and, you know, do what I can to afford it. But there's nothing stopping me from going. So I just, like myself and my partner just one day were like, should we just go? Like, yeah. And we sort of like went on the website, kind of put in our details, got to the kind of booking stage and we were like, are we doing this? We just should we should we? <laughs> like, yeah, I guess so. Um, and that was that. So then yeah, we went around the kind of cherry blossom season uh in 2018, I think it would have been. Um, and it's just such an incredible place. It's uh the best place I've ever been to, and it was just such a unique experience. Um I mean, everything that I will say about it is just such a cliche and it's probably been said like go ahead go for it millions of times before but it is genuinely just such an eccentric but but kind and and friendly and inviting and unusual place um that is just like unlike anything else i'd ever experienced um and yeah I, i mean it i would wholeheartedly recommend it there are obviously certain sort of cultural barriers between yeah um, yourself in America and myself in in the UK that are unusual to adjust to um customs that you maybe have to learn and things that you such as bowing that become a little bit of a uh, something you're unfamiliar with and it seems a bit strange at first but I think it's part of the, the appeal and part of the charm Sure, it's it's different. It's an alternative to what you know, and you're kind of going into somewhere where this has already been steeped in its tradition and heritage for years. So, you know, the best thing that you can do is not fight it because it's unusual and it's different. Is to just sort of go with it and, yeah. and immerse yourself into it. I feel like, um, I mean, people obviously travel for different reasons. For me, I think I've always just wanted to experience different ways of of life, mm-hmm. um, and I think going to someone like japan is just like such a sort of overload of that yeah that it really is quite like amazing you know there's so many different things to learn different things to see different things to taste that you would never normally experience anything like around you or in anywhere close to you mm-hmm. um so it was phenomenal um i think the highlight of it um is something i would recommend if if anyone goes is you can go to the hotel bar from Lost in Translation oh. completely for free. It's just, it's in a hotel like any other bar. Yeah. Um, you only have to pay for drinks if you want. Like, you can just go and enjoy the view. Um, and I guess it's me to really see in Lost in Translation is that you just get this beautiful view of Mount Fuji from, from the hotel bar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember it was like the, maybe the penultimate night we were in Tokyo and we just went up around sunset, just got a beer. Um, they were playing like incredible music. I think they were playing chromatics and um, all these great sort of indie pop bands. You just got to watch the sunset over Mount Fuji. I was like, God, this is this is great. Like, this is up there with like the great moments of my life. <laughs> I was going to say, did you feel at that point like this is this is where I peak? Yeah, yeah. It was one hundred percent sort of like I don't know why I'm going to do anything after this. <laughs> 
we just just stay in a loop of this forever and i'll be perfectly happy <laughs> yeah it was definitely things have gone downhill from there <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible so you, you did you spend most of your time in tokyo or did you sort of sort of move from one place to another we moved from one place to another we spent i mean i guess the the unfortunate thing about working is that there's only so much time that you can sure. sort of take off so we had two weeks to travel um as much of japan as we possibly could so we spent a couple of nights in tokyo um i think we were there from like thursday to sunday and then traveled to kyoto um went to a place called nara which is kind of famous mm-hmm. for um having it's basically it's kind of cool they have basically kind of built this village this town around what was historically kind of woodland area where wild deer would just roam but rather than doing what most places would do and sort of you know push out the wildlife and the animal life they've just sort of embraced it as part of the town so deers will wander around like they're just any other citizen in the town and <laughs> just hang out they just cross over crosswalks and and like walk down the sidewalk it's a really strange place but in very kind of typical Japanese style it's very in touch with and very appreciative of of nature and wildlife mm-hmm. um so that was kind of a, a cool place to visit um and we went to a place called Nikko and then ended up back in in Tokyo for a couple of nights I would like to spend more time in Tokyo if I go back because I hadn't appreciated just how big and how much stuff there is to do there yeah. um with a limited amount of time we did most of the kind of traditional tourist things went to temples um went to the lost translation bar i went to the studio ghibli museum um but yeah there is so much stuff to do and so many like unusual kind of um kind of underground cultures to experience that we never even touched upon so it's interesting you touch on temples um which are very much ingrained in in, in a sort of very ancient and and root part of of japanese heritage and, and culture it's very different to what a lot of people may immediately think of, of japan of being like bustling metropolis with neon lights everywhere it's it's mm. stripped down how was that in in terms of just visiting somewhere of, of a more i guess spiritually pure um essence yeah than, i mean big parts of, of somewhere like tokyo that's the best way of putting it really that it it's it was kind of amazing to step into a lot of these temples in the middle of bustling cities mm. and experience something that was very kind of calm and serene um and like anything in a place like japan there are sort of i guess sort of new sort of parts of the culture that you have to like kind of learn and appreciate um there's certain customs with kind of washing your hands and washing your mouth before you went to temples um there's kind of a way that you pray before you go in which you i would just kind of respectfully would stand back and watch people do it first and kind of learn what the right way was and then do it so we weren't doing anything that was insensitive or offensive but mm-hmm. um yeah it's it was such a kind of culture shock to go from one extreme to the other and they're I mean just kind of I, I kind of like them just architecturally because they're just such beautiful buildings and and have you know such kind of vibrant colors and and kind of wonderful sort of smells of sort of you know incense and and, and things when you kind of go in them um which is just yeah so far removed from from the kind of metropolis life around them 
I think it's really good that they're still very much a part of, of their culture, though. I mean, you look at, at that country as as being a, a sum of all of its parts, really. The country that was obviously like fractured massively post-war, mm. and yet they've managed to rebuild themselves and develop, a, you know, for lack of a better term, a sort of futuristic mindset in terms of like aesthetics, architecture, general culture and and yeah there's a lot of weird shit in japan <laughs> yeah so it's, it's a place of extremes for sure yeah but they've they've kind of managed to sort of adopt a, a sort of much larger foresight than than other places yet at the same time they've never lost touch of the roots and the sort of as i say the things that are steeped very much within their heritage from before uh the the war um and you don't it's it's unusual to see a country that kind of manages to balance two sort of separate time periods and identities and yet merge them into a whole. So that's yeah, kind of interesting, as you say, to see the contrast between that. Yeah, there is definitely a kind of dichotomy between how in touch with very ancient past it is and how in touch with very distant future it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's both an incredibly technically innovative place with sort of a very sort of futurist aesthetic in a lot of ways but then you can go to certain parts that you know really do embrace sort of addition to buddhist traditions of of the past um it's cool and i would wholeheartedly recommend going if if you get the chance it's not as unattainable as <laughs> as i thought it right would be. and that's that's nice to know because for, for, it's always been like a pipe dream that i think i have put on sort of a pedestal as just being like yeah i'd love to but it's never going to happen is it and it can <laughs> It's so easy. Just book a flight, <laughs> find a cheap hotel, they're all good. It's not as expensive as you would think. It's very, very affordable. Did you stay in one of the, the capsule hotels when you were there? <laughs> no, we didn't. Um, we... <laughs> Any reason? <laughs> wow, that was a quick answer. <laughs> I take it that was just something you purposely wanted to avoid. <laughs> Extreme claustrophobia. Yeah. Um, we stayed in a pretty traditional hotel when we were in Tokyo, but we mm-hmm. um, we stayed in, um, they call them ryokans, the sort of these kind of very traditional sort of Japanese bed and breakfast um, kind of guest houses um with kind of bamboo floors and um kind of uh, they have those sort of sliding doors and and things um that was quite a lovely experience really yeah. um it's a insanely friendly place where uh, the one we stayed at had dogs running around and we were just made such a fuss over because we were like these white westerners in kind of a rather obscure area of tokyo uh, of, of kyoto how how did you find that actually as coming in as a, as a Caucasian tourist? Because so I, this was really interesting as a yeah. convert, something I hadn't experienced before. Because most of the traveling we'd done before this was in the Western world. We'd been to America and been across Europe. Um, where obviously as a Caucasian person, I was always been in the in the majority. Um, whereas we were traveling to parts of, of Japan where we were very much a minority mm-hmm. um and so I mean I we were just made to feel very very special and very welcome most of the time well, because good. we were um obviously very different from the kind of people that some some would normally meet um you find this is kind of a strange observation but we definitely noticed ourselves being kind of looked at more and sort of uh, becoming kind of more self-conscious of ourselves because we're obviously stood out in a way that that you I guess is not normally the case in such a kind of 
it's mm. not a very diverse place kind of historically um we never felt that in any kind of intimidating kind of way and we never stood out in, in any sort of uh you know it was never any kind of hostile or negative way it was just we sort of noticed that people would definitely look at us and be like oh white tourists <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, that's got to be slightly alienating and, and unusual to say the least. Yeah, it was kind of eye-opening. It makes me realise that, yeah, that's that's... that a lot of people kind of feel maybe every day. So mm-hmm. um, it sounds like a very simple observation that would be quite obvious, but it never quite dawned on me how it would feel every day to sort of know that you kind of you look different from the majority of people. But that's the thing, I think, um, and, and this really applies to so many areas, it's not until you're actually put into uh, an experience, and particularly somebody else's experience, that is foreign to you, mm-hmm. um, in, in the actual sense of, of foreign, um, that you, you can appreciate what that would be like, because you've never had cause to, I suppose, you know, until, until you've been put in that situation. So yeah, I can totally see how that would be very sort of eye-opening and sort of make you contemplate a perspective that you maybe hadn't done before yeah yeah it's it's interesting because I've, I've heard various accounts i've heard um of people that have been before and found that they were made a fuss over and sort of <laughs> um just treated extremely well and and kind of had uh, almost attention lavished on them um in the yeah, most that's... japanese reserved way possible but they could tell that they were like a like a nice bright spark to somebody's day because is this <laughs> outsider who's who's bringing in a different flavor to their day-to-day life and then i've also heard accounts of people of uh, who've been on like public transport and just been <laughs> pointed at and uh, had the word gaijin just <laughs> yelled at them which oh my God. must have been very very strange that sounds very strange. No, we never had that. It was always the formal with us. We were definitely made a fuss over. The two examples that I can sort of kind of use as kind of concrete instances were when we stayed in that Ryokan, um, the owner was just like so kind of endeared by these kind of two strange white westerners in her place that she like <laughs> gave us gifts when we left. Oh. Um, these kind of little like kind of cat um kind of sundial things that we could we we put around our house um which was incredibly lovely of home and um the other instance was um my girlfriend has um a tattoo on her wrist and and we hadn't really realized this until we got there but it's actually kind of frowned upon to have tattoos in Japan it's always it's historically been seen as sort of like a aside that you're in the yakuza <laughs> so um obviously they appreciate that someone coming from from europe is not going to be part of a kind of inner city gang on but obviously it's sort of like it's a strange and alien thing for particularly sort of older generations of of japanese people to see so there was like an old woman who really made a fuss over my girlfriend with this tattoo and was just like really kind of amazed by this very simple Harry Potter English she had on her wrist <laughs> and was asking about the meaning behind it and when she got it done and what was it like and it was yeah um yeah it was it was, it was really cute it was such a lovely That's awesome um yeah I, I can understand um from the perspective that a, a lot of people uh, maybe sort of really wigged out by such sort of cultural divisions <laughs> and, and differences and as you say the customs that you've adhered to when you're there and, and that you just see being practiced by people who just have it as part of their day-to-day lives but i think it's it's definitely from my experiences of traveling is just 
taking um, what you see and just rolling with it because, as I say, if you fight it or you resist it or you're just really cynical about it, like, oh, God, I'm not doing that, then you're probably not going to enjoy yourself half as much. Yeah, exactly. Like, I sort of, you know, I try to explain certain, like, cultural differences to my parents who were kind of like this just strange it's weird mm-hmm. it's kind of like well it's just the way of life <laughs> like you either choose to sort of ignore it and maybe come across as an ignorant or insensitive or just yeah. embrace it and enjoy it um and you sort of realize that you know things might be different but you know it's all just part of the same sort of universal customs really of just kind of you know being respectful and trying to be kind and, and sensitive to other people and, and other people's uh kind of cultures exactly it's exactly how i feel i do have a couple of questions and i'm going to pose these to everyone it's just quick fire sort of things Ooh, just okay. things that come to your mind without even thinking about it too much all right so the first thing is uh, if you had to pick something that you find overrated what would that be uh if i had to pick something that i find overrated what would it be marvel movies <laughs> oh uh, okay scorsese <laughs> uh, fair enough um, any reason, or do you want to just leave it at that? They're like, they're like consistently three-star movies, and every time a new one comes out, and I see critics kind of saying it's the best one yet, I'm kind of like, really? Because it's probably going to be another seven out of ten. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of with you for the most part on that, I, but I will say that when the the last one, the last Avengers film, I can't even remember the name of it. Uh, Endgame. Yeah, that's the one. When that came out, that was a lot more enjoyable than others, I think, because it built to a climax. And for the most part, because of the audience. Um, I wish I saw it with a crowd. I feel like it would have yeah. been a really good time with a crowd. I kind of yeah. like the sort of smaller scale, kind of more throwaway ones. My favourite's weirdly Ant-Man and the Wasp. I huh. love that movie. I haven't that's seen That's the it. only Marvel movie which I kind of think goes above the sort of average mark. All right, so the flip side of that is something that you find underrated. Um, ooh, okay. I want to kind of steer away from the movie topic because I feel okay. like that's an easy one for me. So something I find... It can be anything. Underrated. It can be a vegetable yeah. that you particularly love. <laughs> Maybe you're missing actually, because of lockdown. I was I actually know. trying to think of food. You know what I really find underrated? I just, I, I really miss just getting, like, a really cheap, like, kind of bowl of like fast food ramen or something just after like you know I don't know like you we have like sort of like takeaway places around like Liverpool where you can just kind of go and get like a poutine or whatever after Mm -hmm. you've been out for a few drinks it's like a really good ramen place which I always took for granted because it was like three pound and it was like not that good but like (laughs) man I'm craving it so much at the moment so like just kind of cheap comfort food that you can just get when you're sort of had a few drinks is something I'm really missing at the moment Maybe fast food is my underrated thing. Okay, all right, yeah. I think I think that's very uh, applicable right now. For sure. <laughs> um, all right, and last question. Um, and again, just right off the top of your head. If you could deliver a message to yourself five years in the past, what would it be? Oh, I mean, I feel like at this moment, it would just kind of be to like go out and do more stuff because it's not going to be as something you can do forever. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. There's times when I sort of put off social plans um or sort of skip films I wanted to see in the cinema or I wanted to see a show and just thought I don't know I don't know if I can afford it right now like I'm going to make the most of those opportunities when I come out of lockdown so if I give myself some advice it would be just 
go and do those things. Don't be such a don't be such a skinflint with your money. <laughs> don't be so lazy. I think that's a pretty solid piece of advice <laughs> to give to, to five-year-old past self. That's good. All right. Well, I mean, this has been awesome talking with you. I mean, it's been a while, and this is one of the things that I really wanted this show to be for me personally, not just a, a case of, of having people on that I know I'm going to get good material from and good conversations from, but just having the ability to to talk with people that I haven't spoke to for a while, or in some cases I've never actually spoke to ever. So I've got a few people on the list that I've known for years, but I've never actually had a proper conversation with. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's been great having you um, on. It's been such a pleasure, and I've really enjoyed. Awesome. Anytime you want to come back, I will always have you on. It's always a good time chatting. I will absolutely take you up on that. Awesome. So there you go. That was my conversation with Dan Seraf. Good dude. Really good dude. Good people. As I said at the top of the show, always a pleasure talking to that man on or off microphone always have a lot of time for Dan hopefully you've enjoyed that hopefully you've managed to take something from that whether it be a recommendation or whether it just be taking in the insights of somebody else and that's one of the things that I would like this show to be over time is a sort of mirror to other people's observations and experiences and the more guests we have on the show the more that's likely to happen You may have also noticed, I mean, it was kind of hard to at some points, um, the use of incidental music on this episode. That's something that I want to sort of pour more into forthcoming episodes. Incidental music, transitions, a little bit of music to break up the chat, a little bit of music to underpin certain things. And most of the music that you've heard on this episode, I have actually made myself. And I think this is a good sort of vehicle to continue doing that. I have for many years, some of you may know, some of you may not, have dabbled with music. I've dabbled with a bit of hip-hop, a bit of trip-hop, ambient stuff, electronic stuff, um, all kinds of things. And it's, it's always just been more from a hobby standpoint. I've never, ever considered myself a musician or talented in that field whatsoever, but it's just something I've enjoyed, kind of like doodling. I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at drawing, but I do like to do it. It just, it fulfills me creatively and it's just, I don't know, it's just kind of fun to do. So yeah, moving forward, there's going to be more incidental music, more random bits of audio taken from here, there and everywhere and just just more of an audio presence to not only break up the conversations, but just add a little bit of spice and flavour to the show, I guess. You know, music has always been an important thing for me. And I think if this show is going to be reflective of me, then it just has to have some music. It just it just has to. Music has been a huge part of my identity for as long as I can remember that it would just be wrong not to include music of all genres, all shapes, all interests and just throw it into the show. But it's not just stuff that I am making myself or sourcing from, from other spots, sampling I want to open the doors to people. If you are a musician of a either a serious, seasoned veteran status, or you are just a casual Johnny come along and press this, press that, put that together, hobbyist who does it for fun like me, then it doesn't matter. All range of experience, all range of genres, all range of styles, all range of interest and ability 
are open. I'm looking for music. If you've got music, if you've got some tunes, if you've got some straight fire bangers, if you've got some jams for me, bro, if you've got a bop and you think it's going to fit the show, then let me know. Get in touch. We can sort of arrange, I don't know, some kind of musical mutual agreement. You know, you give me your work and I can promote yours. You know, it's a it's a it's a dual back scratching kind of deal that we could have going on here. You know, everyone likes having their back scratched, right? I like it. You like it. Let's scratch each other's backs. That's all I'm saying. Doesn't have to get weird. Can do if you really want it to, but it doesn't have to. The point I'm trying to get to eventually is this. I now have ways for you to get in touch with me. So if you have music that you would like to contribute to the show that you think would be a good fit, if you just are working on something that fits, if you just want to jam on on like a I know like a Disney keyboard and circuit bend it and add some breakbeats to it. I know I'm not I'm not telling you what to make. I'm not giving you directions or cues or ideas. Whatever you've got, if you think it's gonna fit, if you think it's gonna work, if you want to have some of your work put on a little platform and I can shine a light on it get in touch, or even if you just want to get in touch in general with whatever, if you've got questions, if you've got comments, if you've got suggestions, topic ideas for future episodes, things to explore, then you can get in touch as well. You can get in touch via a number of channels. You can find the Facebook group on Facebook, oddly enough. Just search for Dimed Out Pod. In fact, if you go to facebook.com forward slash Dimed Out Pod, you can go straight there and that would save you a bit of time and a bit of hassle. Do that. Facebook.com slash Dimed Out Pod. If Twitter is your thing, and it may very well be, then you can find me over there at I am Mal Foster. That is at I am Mal Foster, because that is who I am. So yeah, if you've got some music that you want to throw my way, if you've got some topic suggestions, some recommendations, some requests, as if I'm like a hospital DJ, then yeah, by all means. Or even if you just want to swing by and show some peace and love. If you're feeling a little bit Ringo and you want to do that, you can do so, as I say, either via Facebook or Twitter. And on that note, that about wraps it up for this episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Hopefully you've taken something from it. I do hope it's both of them. But until we meet again, look after yourself and always... Keep it dimed out. <laughs>